Welcome to Mormons on Mushrooms. In this podcast, we discuss alternative methods for healing from trauma and seeking a fulfilling life. We often discuss triggering topics, and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. In addition, the opinions offered by our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the hosts of this podcast. If you'd like to support the program, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Mormons on Mushrooms. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hey. Hey, what's happening? I like to do the two-handed wave. That's like my, I love kind of a jazzy fingers sort of wave, you know? <laughs> it makes me feel very in touch with myself. Hey. Yeah. Can you hear us? No. Yeah. I'm digging your tattoos. Those right? Awesome. No. I love yeah. them. <laughs> oh, Thank you. Dope. What, can we see the, I guess it's probably your left arm. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ooh, mushrooms. mushrooms. Yes. Like a fairy and a butterfly. Fairy. So wow. elemental. This oh, is my favorite. That- a flag Yes. Cute. Yeah. My mom used to say that I can do that when pigs fly. Uh, <laughs> say pigs do fly. That's amazing. <laughs> so I guess for, uh, for people listening, that's a flying pig. Yeah. We'll just yeah. tell him what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His name's Albert. I love him. He teaches me a lot. I, you know, I feel like the tattoos that I, um, that I regret the most end up like being kind of my favorite tattoos in a weird way. Like I have a few that were just sort of a, like a drunken night, get a quick tattoo. Like one night I got Imagine Dragon lyrics tattooed on my body and those are still there. Gosh. You know, what, what, what are the lyrics? I think you've shown me this one before, but yeah, it's, uh, I always have to read them cause I forget the lyrics, you know? <laughs> well, that's why you tattooed them on your arm, dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the more I stray, the less I fear, the more I reach, the more I fade away. You know, I feel like imagine dragons. I feel like Dan Reynolds, who's the lead singer, you know, he's Mormon and all that, but I, I feel like that one album they did is like him kind of confessing to some serious problems with his faith. And, and that's obviously everybody can interpret art the way they want to interpret, but that's how I interpreted it. So um, I, li- I like the, I like that, that tattoo, <laughs> even though it's stupid. I like it. I think it's awesome. It. I don't think it's stupid at all. Well, so is it Cialo? How do you, how do we pronounce it? Cialo? Yeah, you got it. Cialo. Nailed it. Okay. I'm uh, so excited to have you on with us. Thanks. Um, I'm so excited to be here. You guys are so cool. (laughs) I was just re-listening to the video that uh, when Peter sent it to us, it was you sharing your vulnerable story about uh, losing your faith, but also finding it within you. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, inner belief, I think you were saying. Mm -hmm. Um, Inner authority is what I call it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. I love that. And I think that it's a journey, even though it was a, a... a different religion and a different cult or whatever we want to say, it it will resonate with a lot of ex-Mormons. Um, your story will. 
And so, so excited to have you on today. Thank yeah. you for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. So you see our names, right? Mike, Doug, Shalise. Yeah. Hi. Nice to meet you all. You too. This so, is this is the part right here. So we just had it and it was beautiful. So this is the part in every single one of these where we've kind of done our like, we, we oh, we are introduced and hello and welcome and thank you and all those different kinds of things. And then there's that moment where what happened was Shalice and Mike and I were all just like, okay, basking in you for a second and waiting for the other one to start talking. And so from... <laughs> From here on out, there will be none of that because we're we're all going to just be really super chatty and have a ton of questions for you, and you're and you're maybe going to feel like, oh man, okay, there's three of them and one of me, but no, there's four of us, and that's what this is. It's just a conversation about what is going on in this cool plane of existence. So um, amazing, yeah, it's fun. So we probably thought we'd start with uh, if you could, you don't need to, you know, remake that video, but if you could just tell us a little bit about. Uh, your journey, like who you are and, and what you were dealing with and how you kind of went down into it and came through the other side to to where you are now. That, that would be really cool. Mm, yeah, thank you for the question. So I grew up in a very conservative kind of ultra Catholic uh, family. I say ultra Catholic because there is a lot of difference in Catholicism between different versions of it. My family, um, I'm like fourth, fifth generation immigrant. So it's been well settled here, my family, but uh, very sheltered. They lived in like small towns, not exposed to other people, not exposed to any other ideas, any other races, anything else, right? (laughs) So then my parents were the first ones to move outside of Saskatchewan into a city. And the city was like 50,000 people. And I was homeschooled and I wasn't allowed to talk to or like be friends with people who weren't Catholic and homeschooled. So, and even within homeschooling, I wasn't given public education. I was given like unschooling where we came up with our own stuff. And honestly, I love the schooling model. I think it was so helpful for me in so many ways to think outside of the box and to be different than the way that everybody else was and to be okay with that. But it was its own version of a uh, a little like uh, environment of its own without any external exposure, right? Right. So I was, wow, yeah, it's it's almost challenging to talk about in public because it's still so triggering. There's so many things there that I haven't been able to deal with yet. It's like every time I go to heal a layer of it, there's like five more below it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing. It's so complex. Uh, but I left quite young because I was experiencing really unmanageable symptoms. I started to have extreme depression around 16 was the first time I was diagnosed and I had panic attacks and that kind of thing. Even younger, I remember, I think my first panic attack around the age eight. So like something was not working, but I had no concept of what that was at the time no concept. I just knew I needed to get out. So I went to university, left my family around 17, went to university. And in university, it was a Catholic school. It was like a private kind of smaller Catholic school, but still quite liberal in comparison to what I was used to. 
Sure. Yeah. yeah. And Almost I started to learn you, like, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I started to learn like, okay, this is history of Canada. This is what colonialism is. And I was like, what the f- like, I just couldn't even comprehend because I had not been taught that story. Right. I've been taught stories about the saints who were like Native Americans who converted to Catholicism and rah-rah, but I had not been taught about the genocide that was happening at the same time. Mm. So, yeah, it was kind of like uh, the the concepts I had of reality started to disintegrate and <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it, right? I was just like in shock and awe of how I could have been raised in one way of believing. And there were so many other ways of believing that I just didn't even know existed. And that just blew my mind. Right. Yeah. 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 So a few years later, I had a friend ask me a question that just, again, it was like the cherry on top. Like I couldn't handle it. It took me two years to digest this one question. And it was just this, that, because Catholics believe that my version of Catholicism that I grew up, that there's something unique about the people within that particular group, that they are special, that they are children's gods and that God's children and that they would be able to go to heaven. But everybody else is kind of like, you're close, but not quite, you know, that sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure you guys relate. Yeah. Yeah. So my friend asked me this question and she says, do you really believe in a God who sees humans in a hierarchy? Man, you got a good friend. Yeah. I was like, uh, no, that doesn't make sense. I I don't believe that God loves some of us more than others. But what I was taught was if I don't know the answer, I tell them that I will go find the answer and then I'll come back. So that's what I told my friend. I'm like, I'll be back. I'll look up the answer. I'll ask my people. I'll consult my resources. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and I did. I was like looking through the books, like reading through all these things. And then I was like, okay, I can't find the answer. I talked to a couple of priests. I talked to like some scholars who were like major theologians who I trusted. And I always got the same answer, which was, well, this is my favorite one. Some people are roses and some people are dandelions, but all of us are flowers. Oh, shit. Yeah. Just kind of a cool <laughs> teaching outside of that context, you know? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, we're talking about humans. Yeah. 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 So that's where it all just disintegrated for me. Like, this is not working. I can't, I can't go down this path anymore. And so one day I was driving to church and I'm like, by the way, I'd been like two years on the outs of religion. Like I wasn't actually allowed to receive the sacraments, which is like God incarnate, right? I wasn't allowed to receive them because I wasn't a true believer anymore. Um, I would go to confession and I would confess my sins like, okay, I'm doubting this. I'm doubting that. And I would not be forgiven because I didn't feel guilt for what I was feeling, for what I was experiencing. So I couldn't be forgiven, Um, which is like the church's way of saying that I'm going to hell. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about, talk about, I mean, we, we, we do talk about this a lot, but talk about guilt used as a primary strategy, right? That's, that's the strategy. Oh, you came to confession. You, you did the work, you did the research, you're trying to do the things, 
But until we can institutionalize and, and divvy out guilt, then you do not qualify for God. You, you do not qualify for uh, being good enough. That's, I mean, that yeah. uh, unfortunately that's, that's found in the human condition when people have power over other people, guilt is their tool. I, I think. I don't understand. Like it adds on so many unnecessary layers because if you feel guilt, that's already awful. And then if you don't feel guilt, then you start feeling guilty for not feeling guilty. And it's just like this perpetual cycle. The guilt cycle. Or, wow. or wondering, I remember a lot of times wondering if I felt guilty enough, you know? So like, I would heap on more guilt just to be sure that I was, I, you know, I uh, self-punishing. Yeah. Sackcloth and ashes, or I don't remember what the scriptures say, like just like really beating yourself up. Cause it's like, I want to make sure I beat myself up enough that, yeah, I felt enough guilt for. Yeah. Yeah. I had similar beliefs growing up. The, the more you suffered, the more righteous you were. It's like, you can offer it up for other people, for yourself. So the more suffering you have in your life, the more saintly you are really. That's what I grew up with. Anyways. So after all this, I'm driving to church one day and I couldn't get there. There was like a there was some sort of run happening from, I think it was on mother's day. There was some sort of run happening. I couldn't cross the street to get to the church. Like it was literally just on the other side of the street and I couldn't get there. And I just burst into tears because I realized that everything, like all of it was just crumbling in my head as I was trying to get to church. I was like, okay, this is not making sense. I don't believe this stuff anymore. Why am I still trying to get to this church full of these things that I don't believe in? And I, it just kind of like crumbled in my head. Like I, I, I realized in that moment that all of my beliefs were not based on what I believed. They were all based on what I had been taught. And that was just like shocking to realize. Yeah. Explain that a little bit. I mean, can you talk about it? And what, what, and I, not to like resurface a lot of it. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I resonated when you were talking about this and I'll talk about, you know, my experience when it all came crashing down too. Um, in fact, maybe I'll just talk about that part now and then you can add to it. But like, I remember, so in similar ways, I was really struggling with Mormonism. You know, I was really trying to make, I was, I kept looking at the, looking towards the back of the book for answers and there were no answers for the questions that I had. And whenever that happened, you know, there's a common analogy in ex-Mormonism that you're just, Oh, I'll just put that on the shelf. But that shelf can only bear so much weight. And I remember when it was, um, a lot of listeners might know this moment, but there was something called the Swedish rescue in the Mormon, ex-Mormon yeah. lore, I guess. Or I don't know lore <laughs> is the right word, but like <laughs> uh, where there were a lot of doubting members in Sweden, including a high-ranking general authority in Sweden who had all a lot of these same questions about polygamy and all this shit and gay marriage and all the stuff that the church is still grappling with. Um, and so they had this thing called this quote unquote sweet Swedish rescue where a general authority and the church historian went out to Sweden to have a, have a, an event where they like, Hey, let's have like a town hall event and address your questions. And they didn't address any of them. And a lot of these questions weren't new to me, but as I was reading about that and seeing one they're lying and they don't have the answers. 
that's when it, it finally broke for me. And I remember just feeling like dizzy, almost kind of like disoriented, like everything I've been taught, what if it's all not true? And then, so that was crashing down, but then there was a glimmer of, oh, wait, what if it's not true? And the world kind of opened up in front of me as well. So there was like a death and like, but seeing the rebirth at the same time, um, yeah, that was my experience. (laughs) Yeah. I so relate to that. And the opening part freaked me out. I don't know what your reaction was to that, but to me, I was like, what? I have to make my own decisions. I had never (laughs) had to do that before. It was like daunting. And honestly, I still have a really hard time making decisions. (laughs) So Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting to me. Uh, one of the biggest ones, and I think it came up that first moment that I had that happen was sex. I was like, what, what do I do now? If, if the things that I was taught about sex are not true, it's like a whole world open to me. Yeah. yeah. I love also that there was a literal roadblock in your way. Yeah. It was almost like the universe <laughs> saying, I'm going to physically make you stop and think about what you're doing. (laughs) And it's Mm -hmm. so cool. And even just having that realization of everything that you knew or you thought you knew was just taught to you and not your own beliefs. Some people never have that realization. I think that's amazing that you were able to distinguish in that moment. Wait, what do I believe? And then decide for yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a certain amount of safety that's required for that. And there's a certain amount of courage that's required for that. Not everybody wants to make their own decisions. It's There's a sense of safety in being able to let other people make those decisions for us. And I'm not judgmental of people who are in religion because I, I know that there is beauty there too. But for me, that didn't feel okay. And I feel extremely privileged to be in a situation where I was able to question that because a lot of people, were, they're not safe enough to be able to question that. So I see that as a privilege. Well, and it's, a, it's an identity. Uh, it's, it's, it's a complete uh, dismantling of your, your whole identity, yes. right? Um, so then you be, and then you, you get into, okay, why? do I make decisions the way I do or, or why do I shy away from making decisions? You know, mm-hmm. it's that thing of, have I really just been making this? Deci- have I been trying to do the right thing for some reward for, for some sort of benefit to the, to the, the decision that I make? Like, is it a, uh, is it a weigh the decisions? Here's what I get. If I make this decision over here on this other side, here's what I get. If I make the other decision and which one uh, do I get the most reward out of? And that's kind of what uh, most of these, most of these religions that we end up talking about. Catholicism is no different than Mormonism is no different than, uh, you know, Judaism is no different than, and, and it becomes this thing where suddenly you're open and your identity is crushed and you don't know, um, how you make decisions or, 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 or why. And it starts to become this thing where you have to build up. Okay. Am I making this decision because it's the, the right thing to do? I think there's some kind of philosopher who calls it like the most right, the Emmanuel Kant, maybe anyway, the do the right thing regardless of the outcome, right? Regardless of whether you're punished for it, rewarded for it, 
uh, indifferent, ambivalent, just do the most right thing whenever there is a decision to be made. Well, that's great. And that's a cool philosophy to have, but it's also tough for someone who really spent a lot of their life letting those in charge dictate how they would make decisions, right? It becomes this whole thing of, I don't know, I don't, I, 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 who am, who am I? to decide what is the most right thing to do. I've been taught my whole life that I'm just a tiny little insignificant cog in the wheel of salvation or in the wheel of, you know, eternity or heaven or whatever. And so I don't have the authority to make decisions for myself, which by the way, even saying that sentence out loud gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. Like I get a little bit triggered because of course we only, we only have the authority to make decisions for ourselves. So I, I, I really can relate to that, that, that mm-hmm. helpless feeling of, mm-hmm. okay, I've decided maybe I don't believe this. Now, what the fuck does that mean? Right now, now well, what? Mm-hmm. And also your moral compass is all over the place because how do we even know what the right thing to do is if we've been taught our whole life that something is wrong? For example, you were talking about relearning what's okay with sex when you're taught that sex is wrong and sex is bad, then when you lift off that layer of like, now I can do anything, you have to think, wait, is it still wrong? Is it still bad? You have to kind of figure out everything from scratch. Yeah. So true. Yeah. And, and there was all of these layers with sexuality. I think, I think it really spoke to me and stood out to me because I had suppressed it so deeply, but also because I think that, a lot of the roots of our shame lie in our sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so if we, if we were to kind of take one piece of this disintegration of the belief system and we take one piece that kind of holds like the key to the shame, it is to me, the sexuality. And I don't just mean like our ability to connect with other people. I'm talking about our ability to connect with our own sense of pleasure and our own sense of inner authority as well. This belief system that there is something inside of me that's powerful and that is able to have some sort of compass to it. We're talking about a moral compass, that belief that my compass lies inside of me instead of externally in somebody else's hands, that's tied into sexuality for me. That's, and that took me years to discover, but yeah, that piece is so huge. It's huge. And I find that it's no coincidence that we're having this conversation the same weekend that Natasha Helfer Parker. Oh my gosh. A very prominent uh, Mormon therapist is having a, an excommunication trial today in the Mormon church. A sex therapist. So her sex job therapist. is to help yeah. couples have healthy sex lives and and they're wanting to excommunicate her because she is, they think she is preaching something that goes against the church. When in reality, she's like, I'm just teaching what the right thing is for humans. <laughs> she's yeah. like, I don't want to lose my license by giving bad advice. Blows my mind. I've been listening wow. to her story uh, with John DeLynn and I just am like screaming at the computer. I'm like, ah, it's so frustrating. <laughs> you know, my therapist sent me yeah. the video she posted about that or just when she posted about that she's going to have a trial. Yeah. Yeah. And it brought up so much emotion and anger that I didn't think it would, but just anger. And I don't know why. I don't know why I expect the church to change. Yeah. But there's this because they're not going to change. I mean, you were just talking about it, um, Cialo, about how like that shame, if you can tell people 
especially if you can disconnect people to their, to their sexuality, to their core, shame them for it. And then say, you, you need to come to us for the solution. Mm-hmm. They have you in their power. Um, and I remember even with Natasha Helfer Parker, th- that was the first person I ever heard. I think it was on another Mormon stories podcast where she was saying, and I was still a somewhat believing Mormon at the time. She'd said like, masturbation is normal. Yeah. And it's the first time I'd heard from a Mormon therapist or Mormon mental health professional that, oh, wait, maybe there was nothing wrong with masturbating. (laughs) She said something, and this really hit me too when I was listening to it yesterday. She said masturbation is like the equivalent of breathing. It's like telling someone you're bad for wanting to breathe. And just for a therapist, a licensed therapist and professional to make that connection, Mm -hmm. it's staggering that we still have these religious institutions that are just making us feel like horrible, awful, dirty, sinful humans when we're just being human. Yeah. Yeah. They actually have a lot of uh, studies, I guess, where they just pay attention to fetuses and what's happening inside of the womb, what before a baby is born. And they have like numerous, numerous instances of fetuses masturbating. Oh my gosh. Wow. What a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? yeah. Innocent. Instinctual. Innocent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, the, the like w- w- the excommunication that we're talking about and Cielo, some of the things you've probably faced and Shalise, some of the things that you've faced that we call it um, preaching uh, uh, things that are antithetical to the church. Uh, we call these a lot of different things, but what it comes down to is that as long as um, uh men hold systemic power, we will continue to burn our witches and we'll just change the definition or, or, or change what we mean by witch um, mm-hmm. throughout time. And, and, and as far as, as long as humans go, we'll just keep on burning those witches and changing the target so that uh, a, a woman speaking out against men is therefore defined as a witch. And that's what Natasha's going through right now. She's, 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 it's the Salem witch trials is, is exactly what's happening in the Mormon church. Yeah. That's happening all over the place actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. So continue on with your story. Yeah. Yeah. We do take tangents. Which, Sorry. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> well, tell right. us your, tell us your story. Yeah, and then an hour yeah. and a half later, we'll be like, anyway, how's the story end? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no story really ends though. Is the no, thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the next piece of it for me goes into sexuality because so we are already in that we're, we're on the right track. Because that was such a big piece for me and because the repression of it was so, so huge and because the shame was so huge. So I knew that there was something there for me and I, I had been accumulating a lot of guilt over the last couple of years at that point for masturbation. I hadn't allowed myself to connect to anybody, by the way. I was like, nope, you're not Catholic. Nope, you're not good enough. Nope, like just no, I couldn't let anybody close to me. Uh, but I had massive shame around masturbation. So then this thing happens and I'm like, okay, so maybe I can reframe my ideas around sexuality, or maybe I can, 
you know, get some new information and be more educated, maybe, you know, starting to have these concepts come in. And uh, I, again, I just felt so at a loss, like the, the opening was so huge. The lack of education was so obvious. I was just like, frozen. Like, I don't, I don't know what my next step even is to heal this. I I couldn't even comprehend what it meant to try to do that. So my first idea was like, okay, well, let's get this sex thing out of the way. Like, I'm just going to have sex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was pretty good at letting go of the shame I thought, uh-huh. but then what happened is the first relationship I went into was really abusive and not healthy. Oh. Yeah, because I I didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't given the tools to um, even practice safe safe sex. I didn't even think about using a condom. It wasn't even, you know, I didn't I didn't have a concept of what safety was because right and wrong was the only thing I had been taught. So again, a few years later, you know, I, I could tell you about the details of that, which are pretty gruesome in some ways, and. Uh, really painful. I ended up with a, um, I ended up with a pregnancy and four months later, a miscarriage and then a breakup. And so at that point was another major breakthrough. I'm like, okay, here we are again. This is not working. I, again, just like completely lost, completely like, unable to comprehend what I want, what's healthy, what's not healthy. And that's where I started actively going to therapy, (laughs) like actively looking for help, actively reading books about sex, about relationships, about uh, sexual health, you know, like things that are what I would consider basic precursors but are not prioritized in our society and certainly not in my religion or my upbringing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that's, that's kind of where I started on this path of re coming back into the idea that sex is sacred. Like, okay, well, I think, I think my family had that part in common with me. That's cool. (laughs) I have something in common with my family. Yes. Yes. Um, they don't see it that way though. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, so then, yeah, that, that's where I dove myself into education and that's where I ended up finding a home of sorts in my own practices, in my work, um, because it just felt like such a relief to learn basic education about my body and how it functioned. And Yeah. I don't know what else to say yeah. there. Do you guys have questions? Well, I, I have a question because when you <laughs> yeah. say, because I, I, it's funny to go back full circle on that. Like the sex is sacred part. Yeah. <laughs> but how would you say when you say that sex is sacred, the similarities and differences between how your family would mm. see it? Um, because I thought about that too, in a way. And like when Mormons think sex is sacred, it's like, it's all just about, the mechanics of who you can sleep with, right? You, mm-hmm. you only have sex with, a, uh, you have to be married to have sex and only in that container. And, 
only for, I mean, the church has expanded its view of it over time. It shifts to goalposts, but I think originally it's like mostly for procreation. And now they're like, oh yeah, procreation and connection with your spouse. Um, but that, that's how they define, that's how they define sacred. And mm-hmm. even there's been guidelines, you know, and even as recent as like the eighties where it's like oral sex within marriage is an abomination. Don't do it. You know, it's like only penis, vagina, sex is the only approved method. Now they, yeah. they had to backtrack on that almost immediately, but they were still <laughs> trying to control even the container that they established with husband and wife. They were trying to control that container too. And so I'm, when you say sex is sacred, I was wondering if you could yeah, expound on what you believe about that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my beliefs growing up were very similar to what you described. Uh, and for my family, it was always about reproduction. So there was some pleasure allowed, which is definitely a progress from what my grandmother was taught, for example. Uh, she was taught kind of like, if you're a woman, your purpose is to like take what you're supposed to. And that's it. If you're feeling pleasure, then you're probably not doing it right. Oh, oh. So that's where that's, that's my generational heritage of the belief. Wow. <laughs> so there's a lot from. to unpack there. Cause yeah. that's still your DNA. Like, yeah. You. Yeah. Um, and, and my family is very, very, uh, baby oriented. So even the fact that I don't have children is like, I'm, I'm the only one out of six children that doesn't have kids. The next oldest for me has seven kids. Like it's a big deal that I don't have kids. Yeah. Uh, so to me, that was like what I was taught was the main sacredness of it. The reason that sex was sacred was because it was able to procreate. And anytime you cut out procreation from it, it was no longer considered sacred. So Mm -hmm. as a teenager, I was having conversations with people like, what if you're accidentally infertile? Are you not allowed to have sex? That's a great question. I didn't get good answers to it. (laughs) I wasn't in the back of the book. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, So now, anyways, now, uh, what I've come to believe is that there is some sort of power in our sexuality and it's, it's intangible. It's not something that's really easy to describe because it doesn't really have a lot of words to describe it. But it is something that is very primal and it's something that connects us to the earth. It's something that makes us an animal. And that version of it is sacred to me. So anytime that I'm tapping into the energy of my root in that way, I consider that a sacred experience. When I'm connecting with another human, if I come from that intention of wanting it to be connected and with love and with compassion for each other, and even if it's just for the sake of feeling good in my body, I consider that to be sacred. Mm -hmm. And that is so heretical from what I grew up with. I love that so much. It's funny because I just had this conversation on a different podcast because I said I had the same experience. I went from sex is bad to screw the church. I'm going to have all the sex back to now. It's a very sacred thing for me. And she asked me the same thing. Well, like, well, what's the difference? So there's a huge difference. Like you were saying now it's an energetic exchange. Now that I understand 
the the mechanics of how it works energetically it's it's a game changer one of my teachers had told us never had never have sex with someone you don't want to become because they mm. literally leave behind their energy in you and it will transform you and it will change you and so when you come at it from that perspective of i want to become one with you whatever container that is that you've set aside for yourself is up to you, but it's no longer right or wrong. It's just, like you said, it's all about the intention. Mm, yeah. The, the piece that you just mentioned, I go back and forth with this one a little bit, like I haven't fully clarified it in my mind, which is that, uh, as a woman, especially this is, I think a particularly, a, a female topic of, receiving the man's energy and mm -hmm. that there's a lot of fear-based uh, teachings in the spiritual world about this as well. And a lot of sacred sexuality teachers talk about this, about how you want to like really protect your energy and don't let people inside you because you're, you're receiving that person's essence and your body absorbs it and your brain has chemical reactions to it. And these things are true. And there still seems to be quite a bit of fear in that way of speaking about it. So I'm still a little bit cautious about it. And I still want to really, I really want to empower the people who want to have a sacred slut or a sacred <laughs> whore yeah. way of being in the world. You know, people who are sex workers, for example, that concept of like, make sure you don't ever let anybody in your area unless they're like the exact person you want to take on everything about who they are. Well, that's shaming all sex workers now. Mm. Okay. So, so there's, yeah, there's definitely pieces of it that make sense to me. And then pieces of it that I'm still like, mm, there's a balance somewhere. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's a really good point. And also I think it still just comes back to intent. Like what is your intent with the person is your intention to really connect and become one or is your intent something different? Because yeah. I do think that that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And that's why I clarified too, that I think that the sacredness of sex can be just around the sense of pleasure, that it can be a sacred thing to give yourself permission to feel pleasure. Oh yeah, that's it. Give yourself permission to feel pleasure. Mm-hmm. I don't know, want to chime in here because I'm loving the two women talking about just like, yeah, in a way, and I don't want to come mansplain something, got, you know? Yeah, I, got, I, got, uh, I, got, I got nothing to add to this. But I just wanted to add what you just said there. And I think there's something about growing up in a very religious culture about well, what does this mean? And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but pleasure can just be pleasure and it's okay. You know, I get in this with my therapist a lot where I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, pleasure can be something I can learn from and this. She's like, yeah, but can, it can also just be pleasure and that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay to want pleasure. That's one of the things. I think we're it's more than okay. Yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> sacred. Pleasure is really sacred. So this is the underlying belief for me is that pleasure is something that is, and this is like so shocking to my mind still. <laughs> the belief is that pleasure is an internal compass. We're talking about inner authority. How do we know what our inner authority is telling us? Right. 
when, when we have no concept of that, how do we figure that out? How do we figure out what my inner authority is telling me? A lot of us who have experiences like we do here, we have no clue what our inner authority is trying to tell us because we've never practiced listening to it before. So we're like clueless. Mm-hmm. Pleasure becomes that if you allow it to. And this is why it becomes sacred because pleasure can be like the compass that lets us know where we're going north being like, okay, yes, this is so good. This is like a hundred percent. Yes. Everything inside of me is screaming yes to this experience. That's the inner compass. Your body is fully aligned at its core with your purpose, your passion, your calling is all going to be wrapped up in pleasure. Wow. This also just clicked for me because how we were talking about being inside of a religion, sometimes it's all about self-loathing and about hating yourself and feeling guilty. There is no permission to feel pleasure because right. even if we feel pleasure about something, it's now you're being too prideful. Now you're being vain. Selfish. Yeah. And so, oh my gosh, like, I think that's, that's the key. That's the shift. Allowing yourself to feel pleasure will give you that inner authority and will give you that right compass of where to turn, but you have to allow yourself the opportunity first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question relating to that. Yeah. Maybe you guys can expand on it. Cause it's something I, this is so timely for me guys. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, because I've noticed that when it comes to pleasure, I'll allow myself to receive it to a certain point. And then I don't know if it gets too intense or too undeserving or too, or maybe there's a trust issue there where it's like, I don't trust myself to surrender to the pleasure to the degree I really want to. And there's a block there. And so how do you, how do you work through those blocks? I guess is my question. (laughs) Oh, so good. Oh, you just brought it all around because surrender is such a huge topic, especially for people who practice with psychedelics. We have an understanding of surrender as being the thing that allows us to go through experiences with ease. And it does give us a sense of pleasure, right? You go into an experience of a death of some sort. And the only thing that's going to allow you to get through that is surrender. So when you're practicing with pleasure and you feel yourself hit your own glass ceiling of how much you think you can handle, right? That's the conditioning or the fear or whatever it is that you're dealing with telling you like, okay, I'm not sure if I'm safe enough to go there. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so- It's this constant practice. It's a safety thing. Yeah. We don't feel safe and not just conceptually, but on a physiological level, our body is actually doing the same thing because our nervous system is tied into our ability to feel pleasure. So your nervous system is your ability to uh, decide whether you're safe or not. Right. So if your nervous system is used to being on guard all the time, protecting yourself because you've had trauma in the past or whatever, or even just in a particular situation. So trauma in this situation could just be the shame. Right. So you're feeling pleasure and then the shame hits you in the face. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, Bonner's gone, right? Yeah. So that practice is like lifting the glass ceiling, but it kind of has this, for, for a lot of people, it has this very slow and steady kind of um, need to it, very gentle because the shame is so loud and it's so, shame is almost violent, you know, it's like in your face. And sometimes we don't even feel worthy enough to be feeling the pleasure. You feel it for a second and then you're like, wait, do I deserve this? And then you retreat back. And especially coming from a religious background that does layer on so much shame and guilt. And then I also loved um, what Carolyn said, an existential kink. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, uh, but she talked about sometimes when we're in pleasure too long, we feel like something's off. We're like, wait, I need to sabotage this because it's almost like we're addicted to pain in some ways and we're used to that. And that's safe being in that horrible state of depression and just being upset and anxiety and shame becomes our normal. So when we're not feeling that we're like, wait, something's off. I think I need to retreat back to that. Yeah. And too good to be true. Mm -hmm. This comes up like, ah, this, this, there's something wrong. It can't be this easy or this good. It's there's something I'm missing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's good. Can it really be this good? Could it really be this good? Is it this easy? Is life this good? Am I allowed to feel this good? Allowed to, like somebody else has to give us permission, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the practice for me of what what I've been devoting myself to, and I I love that word for it. It's like a devotion for me. I like to swap the word devotion for discipline. Instead of disciplining myself to it, I'm devoting myself to it. Mm -hmm. And the devotion is to pleasure in my own experience, to practicing, feeling that. And that's my version of allowing that glass ceiling to lift is by continually practicing it throughout my life and integrating it into my nervous system through using techniques and my breath and these things and teaching my body and my brain that this pleasure that I feel is sacred and that it's safe to feel that and that there's more and oh. more and more. Yeah. I love this so much. I love it so much because when you really connect with yourself in that intimate space, it's empowering. Yeah, You go about life with this air and this confidence that I can conquer the world. I can do anything because when you are so connected to every part of yourself you're able to give every part of yourself to those around you instead of walking around fragmented, disconnected, shameful. It's just, and and that's exactly it. That's exactly what we were talking about. Religion tends to put you in a shameful guilt space so they can control you because they can't control someone who is empowered, especially women. They can't control these goddesses, these creators, if they're connected Mm -hmm. with themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about gender, the, the female version of surrender is so powerful. The 
ability for a woman to just let herself go into the flow of pleasure is so powerful that it can like literally stop other people in their tracks and just like take over everything. Like, like even just the existence of sex work speaks to this. It's so powerful and it has been so powerful for so long. So it makes sense that there are people who are not okay with that and who would want to tone that down. Yeah. Or shut it down. Shut it down. <laughs> Completely shut yeah. it down. Speaking of which, you guys, there was just a massive wind gust outside as we're talking about this here in LA. I don't know. <laughs> I had to like mute my mic because it was like, so whatever you guys are swirling up here, it's pretty intense. <laughs> but I wanted to talk. What's that? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say you see it in pop culture, Yeah, like the rise of the feminine and the rise of taking back even shameful words like slut or bitch, like really owning them and saying, yeah, I'm a bad bitch and making it a good thing is just mm-hmm. so empowering and awesome. Sorry, Mike, go ahead. Yes. No, I'm loving this. I, I wanted to hit on one point here, which I think was really great when you were talking about the nervous system and your body, because, you know, unfortunately with a podcast, it's a very cerebral medium in a way, you know, we're, we're just giving advice. And I think sometimes I'm listening to a book and I'm like, yes, I, I figured out the answer to all my <laughs> problems. Right. And, and I know, and I'll listen to a podcast and get the same insight. Right. And I know, you know, people might listen to us and be like, oh, that was so insightful. You know, this, I'm, I figured it out. And then the, they feel good that day. And then the next day it's like, wait, what's happening. And it's so much somatic, so much in our bodies and so much, And that's why it's a practice. And I love how you said devotion to a practice, right? Of training our nervous systems to experience more, whether that's to feel through more fear, more pleasure, you know, in order to, as we expand in our energy and our capacity, we're going to hit these blocks of like, wait, we've expanded this far, but now, now I'm scared now. And our nervous system is going to want to, protect itself and retrench. And that's why it's a practice. I don't know if that resonates, but. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can totally go with that, Mike. I got you. So to me, there's like a disconnect in so many of us between the mind, the thoughts that we have, the information that we have, the knowledge that we have, you know, especially if you're a book nerd, or if you're into, you know, scholastics, you have this understanding of things in that sense, but then to have that click in the actual experience of your physical body is totally separate. And a lot of people don't know that, right? A lot of people, we, we have this idea that if I can just get all the information inside of my head, then I'll be good to go. But there are, you know, numerous counts of people who've been in therapy for dozens of years and their life is not changing. Right. There's so many pieces that require us to feel it, not just to know it, not just to understand it on an intellectual level. So the nervous system is the conduit between those two things. It's our ability to integrate what we know from an intellectual level into what we feel on a physical level. I think that's why we love plant medicine so much is because it is the ultimate connector of the two. And it's so experiential and you're like, Oh, I get it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yes, oh. I feel that. So on One podcast level, oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, go. No, I, I am still yeah. going with the same thing because on podcast level, we're talking about the intellectual side of things. We're using words to describe something, but there is ways to to like tap into the untangible without using words. And the breath is like the most simple way to do that. Right. So if you're feeling something specific right now, or you're, you're noticing what's happening by listening to my words, like you might be noticing certain thoughts happening, or you might notice like you're twitching something in your body, or you're kind of feeling distracted, just notice whatever's happening right now. And then I'm just going to take a deep breath and just notice if anything changed. And that's like a tiny, 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 minute example of the difference between the intellectual world and the experiential world. Like what happens in that change is so profound. Even just two breaths like that can change our experience. Okay, your turn, Mike. Thanks. No, that was good. <laughs> I guess the only thing I, this came up for me this week is that sometimes, you know, when we think about our head and that connection with our head and our body, a lot of times stuff will come up, especially when we're talking about the layers and the layers to trauma, where we don't know where it came from. You know, like I had an experience the other day where it's like, I feel like, I just needed to cry and I didn't know why, you know, and it was okay to not know why. But the interesting thing was, is I I was also feeling anxiety one night trying to fall asleep. And it was one of those nights where I'm like, I'm not gonna be able to fall asleep. Um, And I noticed I just kept going back and I guess I was breathing, you know, taking deep breaths, going back to where I was feeling the fear, the anxiety. And what I would notice is my mind would be like, oh, it's about money. No. And then I take a deep breath. No, it's about work. It's about relationships. It was just trying to hook something (laughs) to bring meaning to the anxiety. And when I realized that these were just my, it was just my ego trying to attach some story to it to get me to hold on to that emotion and not feel it. I was able to feel it and I was able to go to sleep. Um, You know, it was kind of like the story was irrelevant, but the feeling was what was important. Um, and I don't know why I was feeling anxious that night. It could have been a, it could have been all of the above. It could have been none of it. It could have just been something resurfacing from a memory as a child. I don't know, but it, it does, didn't matter. I just needed to feel it. Well, yeah. sometimes, sometimes we pull other people's emotions and then think they're our own. So you could have even picked up on something from your wife or your kids and it's just kind of living in your field. And so I think it's good that you didn't try to attach meaning to it because sometimes it has nothing to do with us. We just have to breathe through it and let it go. That's a new thing for me. <laughs> yeah. That's also a difference between uh, modalities with psychotherapy. We have the concept of trying to understand and like navigate the details of what happened and why it happened and how it affected us. And with somatics, we're just feeling it. We're just practicing feeling it. And we don't have to understand why it's happening. We can just surrender to it. Like, okay, this is what's here right now. 
maybe I don't need to know why. Maybe I can just let it flow through my body. And then once it's gone, it's gone. And do I have to understand why it was there in the first place? No, not really. And put I can if arms, I want to. Yeah. Put your arms around it and welcome it, which is hard sometimes mm. when it's the feeling you don't want to feel. Just like, you know, you're okay to be here and just put your arms around it, welcome it in and see what shifts then, you know? Yeah. Doug, you've been really quiet. Mm-hmm. I've yeah, I have been quiet. I I, <laughs> I I don't think that. Uh, um, yeah, I don't think I have a lot to add. I think that the the voices we're hearing are experts on some of the stuff that we're talking about. And for me, it's it's uh, I, I'm I'm enjoying letting that sink in for me. And obviously, a lot of stuff is coming up for me, and my mind's going a lot of crazy. Um, cool places, but uh, yeah, I'll, I, I will tell you, Shalice, the, the one thought I, I did uh, that when you were talking about the way we see some of this uh, stuff that we're talking about show itself in, in things like pop culture and, and movies and stuff like that. My 15 year old daughter right now, her favorite song is called wet ass pussy. And she can, <laughs> uh, she can rap the entire song and she knows like these dance moves about it, you know? Uh-huh. And I had a friend, uh, we, we were hanging out and he overheard her in her room, you know, rapping wet ass pussy. <laughs> and he asked me like, doesn't that worry you? Like, don't you think she's going to become like promiscuous or doesn't that give her a different, uh, it, don't, don't people look at her a little bit differently that way? And, you know, that that's a really hard thing to defend and also feel like you're being a good parent because my whole thing is growing up my favorite ba- still my favorite band is Led Zeppelin and Led Zeppelin songs are about three things they're about Vikings sex or Vikings having sex like those, that's <laughs> that's what Led Zeppelin's music is about and it's totally culturally appropriate I mean they play Led Zeppelin songs in children's movies about comic book characters and everybody gets all excited because the guy's going to do a cool move and all that thing. And meanwhile, we've got people uh, that are saying to me, are you a bad father for letting your fit for letting your 15 year old daughter uh, learn this song about uh, female empowerment and about the Mm -hmm. same goddamn thing that Led Zeppelin's singing about only from a woman's perspective. It's Mm -hmm. it's, It's about a woman like saying, yeah, I got a little bit of power in this little power struggle in this little relationship. I got a little bit of something to offer to this. And I also have needs and I also have um, a little bit of the, a little bit of the uh, animal instincts in me. And it was a rough night for me because I felt like I uh, did kind of like a sort of a pretty shitty job. I mean, making a Led Zeppelin comparison is not an apples to apples comparison. I think that there's more to it than that. That Led Zeppelin in their time was free to sing about everything they wanted to sing about. ACDC was free to sing about anything they wanted to sing about. Def Leppard, uh, every, well, every song probably we've ever heard from 1952 until 2021 that was sung by a man has something to do about his needs and his desires and and the way he wants to express himself and the way that he feels. And that's a blanket statement. Not every song is, a, is about that. There are people that sing songs about joy and love and peace and bliss and all that kind of stuff. 
But it really did like uh, give me the feeling that Mike was talking about where I laid there thinking something's unsettling here. And is it, is it me? Is it what my friend said? Is it me as a parent? Is it my daughter? Is it the, the disconnect between me and my buddy, the way I view the world versus the way he views the world? And so, um, yeah, Shalise, give me an opportunity to start talking. I'll tell you, I got nothing to say and then I'll talk for 45 minutes. But, I love uh, it. But yeah, that's, the, the, there's a lot that's swirling around for me when you're talking about, um, you know, surrendering to uh, pleasure. And when you're talking about, that's a both parties or all parties, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to specify and say all parties should be, uh, should have the, the authority within themselves to surrender to that pleasure fully. But too mm-hmm. often there's checking in with one another and checking in is a great thing. But if it's done as a way to um, withdraw your ability to experience and surrender to pleasure, then maybe there's some kind of weird uh, block there. Maybe there's something there that uh, everyone involved could participate in and discuss and get out in the open and have a, an understanding uh, uh, on both sides of, of how to unlock more deeper, fuller pleasure for everyone. So that's, that's it as far as what I've got to add to this. Well, before for now. I, I just want to say one thing about that, Doug, I'm on team Doug in this scenario about your daughter rapping to wet ass pussy. I am on team Doug here. Plus that song like, is dope too, right? Yeah. Like I love that song. But teaching her at that age that like she can own her own sexuality. She can own her yeah, and feel power in her femininity, in her pussy, you know? Like, Same. I'm sorry, yeah. I, I don't want to talk about your diet, but you know what I mean? I'm just saying like, yes, that's awesome. Agreed. I'm on team Doug. <laughs> I, yeah. I am too, but it was a tough, uh, it was a, it was a tough you know, sometimes it's hard to support uh, somebody. And that night it was really hard to support team Doug for me. Cause yeah. I got to all sorts of, I had all sorts of stuff coming up for me. It, it unlocked a lot of weird old, like chiseled into me, you know, stuck in the walls of my heart, stuck in the walls of my gut type of stuff that I still have inside me that I was like, Oh, am I, am, is, is this bad? Is it, am I a bad father? Is, is it, should, should there be some kind of like, uh, boundaries? I, I had a lot of shit going on that night, but anyway, that's a great conversation. I'm, I'm really appreciating it. Uh, thank you. Well, it yeah, makes thank complete you sense. It makes sense because it's new because we haven't had this rise of the feminine in this empowered sexual way. I mean, we started, we started to see the empowerment coming and now it's the sexual empowerment. It's the full integration of the woman, not just, yeah, hold a job and like be a provider of the family. Now it's you can feel okay to be sexual and and empowered in that way. And so it makes sense. Like with any change, there's going to be people who question it and say, well, is that right? Just like segregation was wrong and people had opinions on it. Of course, it's okay. It's a human right to feel the way you want to feel and to express yourself in such a, a carnal animalistic, like Ciala was saying way it is natural. Well, and we, we talk about the way that we identify ourselves through uh, our religious upbringing and that becomes our identity. But what a weird thing that we do as a, as an entire society, which is, 
oh, a person sang a song about a thing that for, therefore that identifies that person. We're, we right now are talking about sex, but when we talk about pleasure, the pleasure goes beyond just sex. I mean, there, there's lots of cool ways to experience full, uh, full bodied pleasure. And it doesn't have to be anything to do with uh, an orgasm or, or anything like that. It can, there, there's tons of cool ways, but we, we want to, we want people to be one dimensional. And so, uh, you know, uh, a woman comes out with a song that uh, kind of takes a little bit of her power, like that, that kind of, uh, you know, is a, a bold statement. And we're like, oh, that's only, that's the only thing. That's the single dimensional thing that she's interested in. It's like, how could we make such an accusation? Most people, most people are interested in experiencing sexual pleasure. Yeah. So we're, we're mad at her. What a hypocritical thing to say. And I love that you said that, uh, it's heretical to even talk about the sex in, in these types of ways, because it's so, you know, the, the, the blasphemous nature of it. I, anyway, I got a lot going through. I got a lot that's spinning right now that I can't put into good words quite yet or ever. I just need to sit. No, you're, you're doing it. great. Yeah. I just can't stop thinking about how it would have been for me if I had been exposed to the idea of, a wet pussy being a beautiful thing to celebrate when I was 15, how that would have changed me. Yeah. A beautiful thing, a powerful thing. A thing yeah. that puts someone in a position of, listen, this partnership could be 50-50 or I could have something that you want and you got something I want. So let's negotiate, like, let's make a deal here. Let's do something cool that we can both experience. Negotiates, negotiate assumes that people have to give up some. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say like, let's go into this eyes wide open and we both have the right to experience something really cool here. And and by participating with each other, we can help each other get to a higher plane. We can help each other get to a really um, heightened sense of pleasure. I'm talking even just from a physiological level, though, from an educational level to understand that being wet as a pussy owner <laughs> is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And when how that would have that, changed my experiences. Like, oh, maybe yeah. I should be wet before I go into this experience with this person. Maybe that tells me right. something about my body. Right. I mean, when you said that for the first time, it really hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, because as a woman, if you were wet, that meant you were doing something wrong because you were not allowed to feel turned on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, it's really equivalent, I guess you could say to a guy getting a boner and feeling shameful about it. But how crazy is it that something so natural makes us feel dirty or, or shameful. And like you're saying, maybe don't go into a sexual experience with someone. If your body isn't opening itself up to that, that's another thing that I've been learning too is, well, maybe if you're all closed off, it's because your body's saying, no, we don't like this energy. We don't want to do this. So don't make me do this. Yeah. That's the kind of sex education that we never had. Yeah. Honestly, I think what is pussy is a really beautiful way of teaching us about this. And Let's just normalizing it. it. Yes. I was going to say, talking about your inner knowing, right? Yes. Your inner authority. Well, well no. There's, there's more to it because you can get wet 
without it being healthy. You can get a boner without actually wanting to have sex with the person in front of you. So it's not a full inner authority, but it's definitely a precursor to going further. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to clarify that. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's definitely relevant. <laughs> I, I was wearing track pants in my sophomore year English class and had to stand up and read a, a, an essay that I had written in front of the class. And I got a boner right before I went up there. And I can mm. tell you that a boner is not, always, is not always indicative of wanting to have sex with a person that's in your vicinity. You know, it, <laughs> it could just be a source of like, now what the hell? What now? What are we going to do? Now I got shame and all this stuff. I got to got to carry my 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 textbook and my binder up there and cover anyway. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that really, you know, happens. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about, you know, it's Mormons on mushrooms and do we want to talk about plant medicine at all? What else do you want to talk about, Ciala? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I love talking about plant medicine. All right. So what's, uh, what's your experience with it? <laughs> okay. How'd you get introduced to plant medicine? Um, it was my mental health that took me there. I... I got diagnosed with a variety of different uh, neurodivergent divergent labels throughout my life, but there was a particular one that just really hit me. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder after being 20 minutes in this guy's chair, and then he prescribed me lithium and an antipsychotic, antipsychotic and told me that I would just have to take this. And I said, is there any other options? And he said, you came here for help. This is what help looks like. And I said, okay, thank you. And I left. And then I threw out the prescription. Um, I, that was a really terrifying experience though. Um, I knew that I needed to do something. I, I mean, I was not okay. I did need help. I just didn't want that help. So I started to look at alternative medicines and I got into cannabis first. So I went to a medical doctor who prescribed medical cannabis. This is before legalization in Canada. And that was my first introduction to like plants being a medicine that could solve solutions that um, pharmaceutical medicine would maybe solve with a whole bunch of side effects that I'm not interested in. Mm. So like, okay, the alternative looks really enticing here. And then I kind of went from there uh, a few years later, I was in a bookstore and I'm, I'm always looking at the mental health section. And at the end of the wall, there's this book by Michael Poland. I can't remember the name of it. How to change but Thank you. Yeah. And I had read his stuff before about um, the omnivores dilemma, and I was really intrigued by him as a researcher. So I was like, what? (laughs) What is this? Like how? Okay, I have to read this book. And so I started to read it and all of my ideas about what psychedelics were was just being totally thrown under the bus like okay (laughs) this is another one of those cases where I've been miseducated like hardcore and I I sent a text to a few different friends I'm like do you guys know anybody who could like guide me through this I didn't want to just grab something from the street and 
throw yeah. myself into it. I wanted to be supported and I wanted it to be really intentional and I wanted it to be sacred. So I found somebody who held space. And my first experience was with five grams of penis envy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny. <laughs> I think it's hilarious that that was my first experience and it felt like I was home for the first time as the, the best way that I could describe it afterwards was, it was like, I was finally home. Like I had experienced for the first time what it felt like to be fully free, to be specifically to be free of fear I had such a profound understanding of fear being something that was just a concept and that it did not connect to real danger all the time. And that it like just blew my mind. Right. But the sense of home was so. Wow. It just took everything away from me and like tore it all apart and then put it all back together in this like most magical way I just I couldn't you know it's still hard to describe but something in that moment just really gave me permission to to feel full safety for the first time it was yeah beyond what I can describe and then from there, I just, I, I knew that that was a path I wanted to stay on because it was so meaningful and it was so life altering. It changed so many things for me, like the experiential experience that we were talking about where things that had made sense in the logical mind before were now starting to make sense in my actual experience. Mm. Like, oh, so satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had another really strange experience with my kind of first exposures, which is that I started to connect the dots between some of the things that I had had happen to me in the past that were in, had been labeled as mental illness in the past and seeing how they connected to psychedelic experiences, specifically like one of the side effects of, uh, quote unquote, bipolar disorder is uh, having some visuals, like you kind of see things in ways that are not the same as neurotypicals. And with psychedelics, and by the way, psychedelics are not generally compatible with bipolar disorder. For anybody who's listening, make sure you do your own research and decide what's best for you. But for me, I was experiencing these visuals with the psychedelics that were very familiar to me, even though I'd never had it before. And that was so profound to me as well. Like, okay, the things that I had experienced in the past that nobody else could relate to of like seeing things or feeling things or like, you know, just hypersensitivity, these things were magical and powerful and meaningful and have so much to offer. Like it, it was just such a huge change for me to see everything in a different way. I love you saying I just felt like I was home, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You think of home and safety and you were home in your body, you know, like we have all the safety. I loved how also you said that like, 
fear doesn't actually mean you're in danger. And in fact, we've talked about this on another one, a podcast about like, there's not a coyote at our door wanting to eat us right now. Or like, you know, we're not out in the woods somewhere. We're most, most of our lives, our bodies are completely safe, but yet we still feel feel all this fear as if we're not. As if we're in immediate danger at all times. Yeah. And so I just love that feeling of like, I'm home now in my body or and I keep That's going beautiful. back, I keep going back to giving yourself permission. So like you were saying, you were having these visuals before you experienced plant medicine. And then when you experienced plant medicine, you realized how amazing it was. And maybe that was just yourself giving yourself permission to have those visuals and realizing it's okay, giving yourself permission to feel the pleasure. And I love plant medicine so much because it really is an experience. And there are no words most of the time. It's just once you drop into that space, you're like, oh, I get it. I get it now. It all makes sense. Yeah. There was such a huge relief for me in that understanding like, wow, okay, there's not something wrong with me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How long was it between you hitting the roadblock at your church to actually discovering plant medicine? Like what, what was the arc like of that journey? It must've been about five years from that point of my value systems disintegrating and reopening to getting the diagnosis and the prescription and throwing it out and, uh, starting to look at cannabis as a real solution. It was about five years. So do you feel like most of your progress and growth with allowing yourself to feel pleasure and become empowered was before or after you discovered plant medicines? Wow. I don't know if I can see a direct change because it's so subtle and there's so many other pieces that were relevant for me in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I can't really say, but what I can say is that when I found a psychedelic community, there was something that clicked and there was something that felt safe beyond I had felt before. And that gave me permission to explore sexuality in ways that I hadn't before. Mm. There was definitely a particular opening that happened that was connected to being exposed to plant medicines. And I think the connection is that plant medicine was a safe place for me in in my head. It felt safe to feel pleasure there. Mm. And And the community was so welcoming of that as well. Community was very supportive of allowing uh, alternative uh, relationship styles or, you know, I I didn't have to fit the mold of the societal norm in this community. So that was such a huge gift for me. And that did make a huge difference. Mm I think we can all relate to that in one way or another. It seems like most of us have, how do you even explain it? Like you start to emerge into yourself. You start to become yourself 
you feel like, all right, I got this. I got this. And then you try plant medicine and then you're like, I really got this. I can can really do it now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and at home in a community, I think, and one of the things I love about the plant medicine community and community that like we have, like, you know, on our Facebook group, um, we're all kind of all just embracing our own weird you know? Yeah. And that's okay. You know, I like how you said you didn't feel pressure to conform to anyone there. You know, you think the conformity in religion. Um, and I love it. Even at the beginning, you talked about how you were from Catholicism, but in Catholicism, a lot of different types and in Mormonism, it's the same thing. We just feel like it's not, you know, there's so many different types of Mormons, but we have this illusion of, uh, homogeny within the Mormon church, but it's so different if you grow up in like, you know, a small town in Idaho versus Draper, Utah, like you're, you're experiencing very different Mormonisms. Um, but what was I going on with that? Oh, just like the, to be in a community where you're okay to be your weird ass self (laughs) in all of its, all of its glory, right. Is a beautiful thing that, and I feel like there's something about the plant medicine community, you know, not that there's, there's definitely dangers within the community. And we need to like look out for that. Like, but for the most part, it's just a lot of beautiful, weird people just accepting our weirdness, you know? Can, can we put that on a t-shirt that says Mormons on mushrooms and on the back, come and be your weird ass self. Yes, be, <laughs> be your weird ass self. I love that. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, that was huge for me. I'd never met a community like that that had just fully accepting. Yeah. Hmm. So where do you feel like you land now? Like with everything, your personal life or professional life, where, where have you settled in this moment? In any particular topic? Are we still talking about plant medicine? With anything that, that speaks to you or anything that you feel is important to know about who you are today. There's there's some things that have become what I call anchors for me and they provide me such a strong sense of security and home and safety. And they are to me like the, the foundation of my belief system or the, the kind of layer that wraps me and, you know, keeps me cozy can see them both those ways. And those are, they're, they're so, so simple. (laughs) It's like love. (laughs) We all desire to be loved. And if we can catch ourselves in difficult moments, if I can catch myself in difficult moments and ask, okay, what would love look like in this situation? Wow. Everything just becomes so much more simple. (laughs) So that's one of those anchors for me. It sounds um, so simple to me that even speaking it out loud is like almost silly. It's really interesting. My brain's like, okay, no, but for real though, this is life changing. (laughs) And uh, along with that is compassion and non-acceptance. The simplicity of compassion and sorry, acceptance, radical acceptance is 
there's there's some sort of ease that comes from this. Like, wow, I, I don't have to control everything anymore. I don't have to try to be right. I don't have to try to have these like arguments and prove that my way is better than your way. I can just come back to this anchor of, okay, what would love look like in this situation, in this conversation, in this session, whatever it is. So I have a few things like that. Another one is the belief that we've already talked about that pleasure is a internal compass. And my life has become completely wrapped around this concept. My work is around this concept. My personal choices are all around this concept that pleasure is in full alignment with my purpose and my passion. And so at any moment, if I'm not sure what to do, you know, talking about difficulty making decisions, I'm like, okay, I don't know what's right or wrong here. Okay, right. There's no such thing as right or wrong. Okay, what do I decide? (laughs) (laughs) My anchor comes back to, okay, what feels good? And there's a distinction here between like our cravings versus our deeper desires. So I want to just, you know, throw that in there that you want to be able to distinguish those things, but the deeper desire, the thing that is the full fuck yes, where your body's really leaning into it. My ear is ringing as I'm saying this, whatever that means. There's some sort of ease to that, that just, wow, it just, Oh, it's such a relief to not have to think that suffering is the way to earn whatever. (laughs) Just giving myself permission to feel good. Okay, what would feel the best here? What would be the most full of love and pleasure? And decisions become so much easier this way for me. And so yeah, so my life is like about that. You know, it's very conceptual, but truly I've devoted myself to this concept. And so everything in my life is working itself into this concept. It's really beautiful. I love just that connection of mind, body, and spirit, because we do often think about, I mean, we talk about it all the time. Okay. What do I want? What do I think I want? What does my higher self want? But what does your body want? And, uh, I've noticed there's many times where you put your hands on your heart. It's like, it's so nice, but that's such an easy way to connect your mind, body and heart space. Just by placing your hand on your chest, it centers you within your body and reminds you that you are in a body that has needs and even wants and desires too. So I love so much that you're talking about connecting everything when you make decisions and I, I've done that before, too, a couple of times. And I'm thinking about career choices, for example. OK, do I want to be a journalist? Do you feel like your body reacting in an open, beautiful way? And then to test it, you can tell yourself a lie like my name is Julie. And all of a sudden, everything feels weird and off. <laughs> and if you really allow yourself to feel the difference, like you said, that's your inner compass. That's how you can really navigate what's best for you. Mm -hmm. I love taking that to another level and 
taking it down into the sexual organs and asking mm. my pussy what it wants. Yes. I love that so much because it does have wants. Like if you really yes. pay attention, it'll yes. tell you. What <laughs> yeah. And this comes back to the sacredness piece. If I see my genitals as sacred and I allow myself to consider that, then the womb becomes this portal to the void and it becomes this like expansive space of infinite creation and like, wow, that's inside my body. Like, wow, it's so powerful and I can tap into it anytime I want. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm loving this, you guys. <laughs> But I'm just thinking as you were talking, I was taking a deep breath and putting my hand on my heart. And there's something about having my hand there that's like, you're safe, you're good, Mm -hmm. you know? And a theme that came up for me in therapy this week is trust. And there were three different themes going along when I was talking to my therapist. And one was trust in myself. One was trust in others. And one was trust in my relationships but it came down to like all this fear. Um, and when the fear became too unbearable is when that trust, I couldn't, I wasn't trusting. And then when I, I I don't know, there's something about taking a deep breath with my hand on my chest. That's like, Oh, I'm safe. I'm good. You know? And, you know, um, I don't know if I trust my penis though, guys. I don't know if I'm going to talk about my penis. <laughs> Just joking. Yeah. I can't speak to that either because I, I think that there are differences and I can't comprehend what those yeah. are because I haven't experienced both. But um, I'm curious what your version of it would be. Yeah. yeah. No, I actually think I should talk to him more, you know. Mm. <laughs> And I love that concept of talking to your pussy and talking to, you know, cause that gets to your core, you know, your, your core. And we were talking about the sacred sex and, and the differences, you know, when I grew up in like, my parents sat me down, oh, sex is so special, so sacred. And, you know, in Mormonism, you get this idea of like, yeah, it's just for procreation and we're going to take our genitals out of our uh, garments for a brief moment quickly make love and then put our garments back on. And that's sacred, right? Yeah. But no, you're talking about sacred. We're, we're, gonna, we're connecting to our animalistic side in a safe container. Whoever's participating in it, whoever you're wanting into that space to participate in that with you, where we're just going to be animals and connect to our core and be vulnerable in that way to where we can, you know, sound, make any sounds we want, make any movements we want, feel whatever we want, even if some of it's pleasure and then some of it, like gets, you know, I don't know, but there's something, <laughs> Yeah, there's just something really beautiful about that. And yeah. it's what we all really want. You know, when we talk about like, uh, we don't want, you know, I'm talking about it from a masculine perspective. We don't want the caged feminine in that we put in like these domestic cages. We want the wild feminine. It's fucking scary, but that's what we <laughs> want, r- really, you know? <laughs> so the core of us wants. Yes. It's the healthy masculine energy that craves the healthy feminine energy. I think when you get into the distorted masculinity, that's when they want the submissive or not necessarily submissive, but someone who isn't fully in their power because if she were in her power, that would threaten the masculinity. So it's about finding the balance not even just male and female, but like within every gender 
finding the balance of masculine and feminine in both. Yeah. To, to, you know, take this a little further, push us a little bit. The, the concept of orgasm is sacred. (laughs) The moment of orgasm, we experience some sort of, you can, you can compare it to psychedelic experiences actually, where the ego is no longer present. Even the physical isn't necessarily fully present. There's some sort of like expansiveness in that moment. And that moment for penis owners can be so profound because it's really uncommon, I think, to find that in other places. And so here is this thing like on your body that like can get you to the feeling of surrender within, you know, however long. And it becomes for a lot of people, their first spiritual experience, I believe. Mm. And to now add intention to that, right? To see it as sacred and to add intention to it. This is like a whole world of how to navigate the body, the desires, the physical reality based on this pure opening experience that we have and giving ourselves permission to take that opening, that experience of orgasm and to integrate it into the body now to like bring it back into earth, same as we would do a psychedelic experience, right? Like, okay, so this is what I experienced way up there. Now I'm going to bring it into this realm, right? To take that experience and to bring it in and to like root ourselves into it, whatever that was, you know, but with the intention, it gives you permission to like tap into whatever it is that you choose. You get to actually be conscious about what you want to experience and how orgasm is going to open that experience for you. Wow. And I don't know if we have time to get into this, but even as a penis owner, learning that orgasm and ejaculation aren't the same. They're often together, right? I don't know if we can touch on that or not. How much time do we got here, guys? Do we have more minutes? (laughs) (laughs) I saw Cielo light up. So yeah. Um, Do you know stuff about that or not? (laughs) I do. I definitely do. This has been one of my biggest passions. I've, I've been working primarily with penis owners for the last seven years, just because I, I don't know, you know, multiple different reasons I could tell you, but this concept seems foreign to most people. Like it's like, we can't even comprehend that orgasm and ejaculation could be separate. And this is just a lack of education, frankly, like there are multiple types of orgasm that you are capable of as a penis owner, but because you've never been told that you don't know that. And so you go for the one that you experience and you think that's the only one. And it's just, it's sad because your body is capable of a lot more. And it's also sad because the female anatomy, the yoni owner has 25 to 45, usually more like 45 minutes before she can even be open to penetration. Like it takes a while for a yoni body to fully open and to be present and to be ready for that. Mm -hmm. And if the 
penis owner for talking about heterosexual sex, if the penis owner is not able to match that because they're used to ejaculating within three to five minutes, which is by the way, the, you know, average is so not compatible. Mm. (laughs) And this is kind of like what our world is running off of right now. And I see this as a work that's really sacred to the Yoni owners because we are not used to having penises that know how to handle that much time. (laughs) (laughs) So many of us have like story after story of these guys who come really quickly because they don't know any better. They've never been educated about how to use their bodies in any other way. And so it does not allow for female pleasure. Do you have specific questions about that though? Cause I can definitely get into more of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you say you work with penis owners, but how, how, how would someone, if, if, okay, if this is some, either the first time someone is hearing about this concept or it's, or they've heard about it, but never practice it. How, what are some, what are some ways that they can start working with this and learning relationships? about it? Yeah. Or learning about more about it. Okay. So there is, there's a whole world that is focused on this kind of thing in Tantra. Mm -hmm. So that might be like a, a buzzword in a lot of communities, right? And like, what does that even mean? And, you know, there's a lot of uh, questionable practices happening in there as well. But if you want to educate yourself, Tantra is a really ancient way of working with sexual energy and um, not necessarily always sexual, but some of the practices specifically from Taoism teach physical ways of practicing how to do this. And you can find these things in books. There's um, there's a book called The Multi-Orgasmic Man that will walk you through kind of the basic concepts of how to do this and why you might want to do this. Um, but generally, if I were to bring it down to like basics of what it is that we're doing, is we're deconstructing the concept as of ejaculation being the point of sex. And this is totally tied into patriarchy. Like we talked Mm -hmm. about the procreation being the purpose of sex. It's the same concept. Ejaculation is not the purpose of sex, (laughs) but so many of us grew up with this idea. And so we're still doing it. Um, so that's the first step to me is deconstructing this idea that the point of sex is an ejaculation. And by the way, it's not only penis owners that think this, a lot of women that myself included that I've been exposed to as well, have this ingrained in us as a conditioning that the point of the encounter is to get the guy off. This is why we fake orgasms. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. I mean, that's a great starting point. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I and I just think about the the times when sex has been most connected for me is when there's no expectation, right? There's no expectation of where we're going, where you know. And sometimes your brain gets there, you know, in the heat of the moment of like, oh yeah, what you know. But like, where it's just like we're con- connecting, and there's no 
no expectation other than the connection and the exchange and the, the presence, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. That's a really beautiful place to be. And that speaks to the work that you've done already on yourself. Thank you. I'm trying. I don't know. It's, it's a process. <laughs> that's hard. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's extremely challenging because ejaculation is, um, addictive. <laughs> so we get really used to it. And, you know, a lot of people have been practicing a three minute ejaculation every day, sometimes twice a day for 30 years. And it's like the brainwashing is so strong, <laughs> right? Yeah. So to deconstruct that concept is it's not simple. It's not, um, it's not quick. Mm -hmm. You're talking about getting your body used to something completely different, your nervous system, you know, That's it's a right. big shift, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, see, I love this. Women. Yeah. Men and women, right? Yeah. 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 Women do it too. We, we also get really addicted to quick clitoral orgasms. That would be the Yoni owner version of this. So do you want to speak a little bit to the work you do now and where people can support you? Yeah. So I've been transitioning over the last year from my previous work, which was somatic and actually working with people's bodies to now presenting it as like a guidance system for you to work with your own body. Mm. So I'm still in the creation stage of figuring out what that looks like. I have most of the ideas figured out, but not the tech to support it yet. Uh, but I'm really passionate about giving people the tools that they need to be able to do these things because, you know, we can talk about them as concepts fairly simply, but the transition of moving it from a concept to an experience can be very daunting. Yeah. <laughs> so I wish that I had people that are, you know, support systems that would have helped me through this so that I wasn't alone in it. And eventually I did find that. So this offering that I'm creating is a pay it forward of sorts. So uh, you can follow me on, on Instagram. I'm love with Cielo, S-I-A-L-O. And on Facebook, I'm Cielo San, which is S-O-H-N. And I'll be posting as I figure out the tech to support it. <laughs> but what I want to do, what I'm going to be doing is creating events and recordings for you to use at home with your partner or with yourself to guide you through the experience of being in the body. Some of them sexual, some of them not. And that's my passion. I'm, I'm so excited. Like, oh, you know, we're talking about what does a full fuck yes feel like? This is it. I'm yes. like, oh, I'm made to do this. It just feels so satisfying. And it's so empowering. I have just dozens and dozens of people coming to me and saying that even just being in the presence of these topics is so powerful. So... I'm really grateful to you guys for giving me the platform to speak about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think this is going to be one of our favorite episodes. I, yeah. I think people are going to be talking about this one and I would love yes. to, when you, 
when you do have the offering ready, let's bring you back on and we'll talk more about that. I would love to, you know? Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much. Do you, do you, do you mind me asking what that crystal that you have in your hands, what it is? This is lapis lazuli. Oh. It was given to me, uh, because I, I've been practicing getting what's happening in my heart and having it actually express outwards. And of course, this is a version of that. So I hold it with me to support me. It's really pretty. It's got oh, like that is cool. gold awesome. specks in it. All right. Yeah. I'm just seeing if I have the same one. That's <laughs> no, dope. Oh, wait, I think mine's different. I had this blue one that was given to me, but this is different. This is like a blue. I don't know what this one is, but. Yeah. I'm just in awe of your complete 180. Like, is there yeah. anything more opposite than 180? Whatever 180 doubled, it's not 360 because it's not full circle, but it's like <laughs> so far apart from like where you began. And I just, I'm just in awe. So thank you for being mm. such a great example of transformation and showing people that you really can change your circumstances. Even if you didn't have an ideal upbringing, there's so much that you can do to really grow into the person that you were meant to be. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. It's such a gift to be able to share that. And a lot of people have this assumption about me that I'm naturally confident and that I have no shame around sexuality. I must have never experienced that because I'm just so open about it and like, oh, wow. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so thank well, you for highlighting it. Of course. Yeah, thank you. I, I've gotten a ton out of this conversation that I, I really need to sit with. We, we've referred to our genitals a, a few times today as, as a tool. Uh, that can unlock different uh, experiences. But the problem is if the tool that dangles between your legs is a hammer and it dictates every decision you make, then the whole world looks like a nail to that hammer. Do you, do you know what I mean? And so I need to get, like Mike said, I got to get a relationship with my penis that is a more of a multi-use tool, something that's a little bit uh, more versatile instead of just running around hammering nails, you know, <laughs> I know that that's the imagery is yeah. not very good with that, but, but no, really it's, it, yeah. Yeah. it's gotta be, um, I got a lot to learn. Thank you very much. I, this has really well, opened some stuff up for me. And today. Just add that real quick, Doug is like, um, cause I joked and said, I don't want to talk to him, but he needs a seat at the table, you know? shutting him out and not like, no, no, you don't, you can't, no, he needs a seat at the table. And maybe it's like, thank you for your input, but no, <laughs> but, <laughs> but give him a seat at the table. And that's where I think I'll find more of my fuck yeses. Right. Cause mm. like, I have a hard time feeling into what I really want. And, you know, part of that is my penis. So I need to bring him to the table. <laughs> There's an, an analogy with this that is coming up for me that you might be interested in. We talk about the penis as being like a wild horse and you're like, whoa, this thing is not very tame, right? Like I can't control it. And the empowerment of becoming the rider rather than the, you know, being pulled behind the horse. But now you're like, I'm on top of the horse and I get to choose what direction we go. That sexual mastery, we call it is. Yeah. That's so profound. And it's really exciting to watch people step into that as you are. 
Yeah. Okay. Thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) us today. Holy smokes. This is insane. Yeah. Such a pleasure. The ultimate fuck. Yeah. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. All right, guys. Have a great Sunday. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to Mormons on Mushrooms podcast. We have so much fun recording it. And if you love it, we would absolutely love it if you could leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It would really help our visibility so more people can listen to it and be enlightened and hear our crazy stories. So thanks again for tuning in. Bye.